This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You are listening to the Fly the W670 podcast. It's episode 10 of season number three, Remembering the 84 Cubs. Don't forget to listen, download, review. Most importantly, subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on all the socials. Fly the W670 on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook, or email us at flythew670 at gmail.com. Crowley, happy uh, end of another week. Uh, nothing much happening as far as Cubs news. Lots of rumors, lots of people saying that eventually Cody Bellinger and the Cubs are going to come to a deal. But at this moment, nothing quite new on that front. Well, we're going to keep our fingers crossed and hopefully, you know, like I said, we're, we're, we're given the benefit of the doubt and, and hopefully something still gets done before pitchers and catchers report February 14th. Yes. Uh, early happy Valentine's day. I'm sure Crowley. It's hard to believe, but this season marks the 40th anniversary of the 84 Cubs. When the Tribune bought the Cubs back in 81 and brought in Dallas green, the Cubs were drawing less than 10,000 fans a game. You had a chance to interview Bob Ibick, Cubs PR director from 81 to 89, about the magical season and some of the behind-the-scenes stories. Joining me now on the Fly the W podcast, I'm happy to be at the Cubs cave of Bob Ibock. Bob was the Cubs PR director from 1981 until 1989. And Bob, you know, we were talking earlier we, they just had the big 1984 reunion, and it is the 40th year since that magical team. Is it? Does it feel hard to believe that it's been that many years? Well, having just turned 75 years old, Paulie, as I said, you know, it's it's it, it feels it sometimes, you know. But what great memories! I mean, uh, just a magical, magical season, and I'm looking forward to the reunion this year with some of the guys coming back. Uh, they're all like brothers, fraternity brothers. You know, you hang around with them on airplanes and field trips and everything else and go to the ballpark every day, and it's nonstop. And, and in PR, you don't have any off days. I mean, Ned Coletti, my assistant at that time, and later became the Dodgers general manager. Uh, Ned was my right-hand guy along with Sharon Panazzo, and uh, we worked every day. When the ball club had an occasional day off, we were still in the office catching up with statistics, lining up interviews, and after Sandberg's magical game in June, it just became a blitz. Huh, I can imagine. Now, you caught the baseball bug early. You just happened to go to a pretty cool first game. Why don't you tell our listeners about your first game that you've ever went to? Well, it was a perfect game because Don Larson pitched in it in the World Series 1956 against the Brooklyn Dodgers. My dad, we were living in the, in the Bronx for about nine years. He got a couple tickets at last minute. We got there about the second inning. And I, the things I was only about, I think, I, nine years old at the time. And the things I remember was the countdown in the stands, the buzz. And, of course, Yogi Bear doing the bear hug on him when it was all over uh, at, at the last out. But it was a, a magical thing. In those days, I was a big Yankee fan and a Mickey Mantle fan. My dad would get us 50-cent tickets. we sit out in the bleachers and probably for a total of six or seven dollars we'd have a couple hot dogs get down there on the sub uh subway and uh and see a double header on sunday afternoon so 
that was my start in baseball, and I kind of got the bug from there. Uh, yeah, I can uh, completely understand. You got to work as a sports writer covering the Washington Senators and the Redskins in the 60s. So you got to Ted Williams, legendary manager of the Senators. Everyone remembers his, his playing days in Boston. And then you got to be with the Orioles in the 70s. And then you became a sports editor in Philadelphia. And that's where you happened to meet a uh, very famous person in Cubs Lord Dallas Green. Tell us about your interactions with Dallas in Philadelphia. Well, I was a, I was the uh, sports editor of the Philadelphia Journal and uh, covered a lot of hockey up there with the Flyers, some Eagles games, 76ers, and of course, the Philadelphia Phillies, the great Mike Schmidt team. And Dallas was the manager of that. And in uh, 1980, uh, they, they won the World Series and they beat Fry's team. And it was amazing you know, uh, victory for them. It just turned the city upside down. And he and I became good friends. I wrote one of my five books, the comeback kids that year. And it was a, just a fun story to write. Larry Bowe was on that team. And, uh, Vukovic was, a, was, was a player at that time. Didn't play very much, but, uh, cause he only hit under 200. I used to kid Vuk about that, but he, he got the ring. Lee Ely was the third base coach in that team. So when Dallas came to, uh, Chicago and was hired, as a general manager in late October of 81, he calls me up on the phone one day and he says, uh, Hey, I back, get your butt out here to uh, Chicago. I want you to be my PR director. And I said, Dallas, I'm a newspaper guy. I, I do radio. I said, I've never done public relations. The, the PR guys that I've always dealt with, you know, you buy a couple of guys, some steaks and beers. And that's, I guess that's what you do. He says, no, there's more to it than that. He <laughs> says, get on a plane and get out here. So I came out, Frank Maloney was then became the ticket manager. He and I were introduced at a press conference in November, and we were the uh, one of the first two hires of Dallas Greens on the on the administrative level. And I quickly uh, found out how interesting and how difficult being a PR director of the Chicago Cubs would be. My first press conference was set up. We were going to have a new uh, uniform for the Cubs that year, and we had just gotten Fergie Jenkins to come back with us. And Fergie was going to model it. And we went down to a downtown, downtown uh, I think it was the Hyatt Regency, and had our introduction press conference. Well, they put a big banner up in the back of the room, building a new tradition, which Bing Hampton, our marketing director, had come up with. That was our slogan. And Barney uh, Sterling was our the guy that was in charge of uh, cinematography and, and things. But he went back. Barney went back to the 40s. And they said, Barney, I'm going to need some footage on Fergie that we can show and uh, that day, can you come up with something? Nah, not a problem, Bob. Well, Barney was in his middle eighties. <laughs> so we get to the, we get to the, the, the uh, uh, theater room there and there's a big screen, Paul, coming down from the ceiling, but it, it, it never would stay all the way down. So my marketing guy, Buck Peden, who used to be with the White Sox, I said, Buck, you got to stand behind here and hold this thing <laughs> down so that it doesn't fly up into the ceiling. Barney's out with a reel-to-reel projector, and I should have been tipped off there that something was going to go awry because uh, as the thing's spinning and he's showing some old film clips of Fergie, well, it was a pitching clinic where Fergie would come to a, a stop, look over to first base, check the runner, and then stop and do it all over again. This was not an action thing. So I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do now? This is this is not really a film on Fergie. Well. The words weren't out of my mouth when the projector went sideways. Barney, unfortunately, had a stroke that day. Oh, no. 
the projector starts landing on top of him. The screen is going wacky sideways. I don't know whether to run or keep on holding down the screen to help Buck. And I see in the back right-hand corner, Fergie's putting up his pants among two waitresses back there to get into his uniform. He thinks I'm motioning for him to come up. He's zippering up his pants as he's walking up to the stage. <laughs> and I hear Buck in the background. I got my tie caught on here. I said, you got to help me. I motioned, I think, to somebody else. You better hang on and get Buck here because I got to go get Barney on the floor with the projector spinning around. <laughs> and now Fergie thought I gave him the hand sign to come on in. It was a parade from a circus. And I thought to myself when the day was over, so this is PR. Well, the Cubs, <laughs> Bob, the, the Cubs needed good PR because when the Tribune buys the Cubs from the Wrigley family and they bring Dallas over and he brings you guys over there, this is not what people think about when they think about Cubs. It's not what pops in your mind. That team in, in 1981 was drawing less than 10,000 fans. It, 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 was, it would almost be unrecognizable to Cub fans today, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I, where my where my office was when I first came there was a little. We were actually outside. We had to go up a little stairway, and outside, we were in the in the basement, or not the basement. I would say on the lower concourse. It was a small room. There were about six of us in there, along with my secretary Ned Coletti, myself, and two other people. And we were it was it was shoulder to shoulder, and in the cold weather, and it was a heck of a cold winter that year. It, it very rarely got below, uh, above, I should say, 20 degrees. Mm. Uh, my car, I remember, froze in the hotel that I was staying at, and I couldn't get it out till we got back from spring training. But it was, uh, it was a tough time getting everything done. We had to get the, uh, the media guide printed and get it ready for spring training in the middle of uh, February and doing that. And uh, it was just, there was a lot of things going on. And I remember when we finally moved upstairs and got into a bigger office, somebody told me, oh, that was the office that after all the Cub games back in the 70s, uh, that Mr. Wrigley would invite employees in there for cocktail hour. And I found out why I, I had a sink in the back of my office there, what it was <laughs> used for, and a refrigerator. <laughs> so so it was like their theory was back in those days, if we could just play 500 ball to June <clears> – <throat> We'd sell enough tickets for beautiful Wrigley Field in June, July, and August and September, and that would be a successful season. If we happened to win more games than we lost, hey, that's okay. But right. nobody put emphasis on winning. And that's where <laughs> Dallas Green was someone that was extremely competitive. Oh, yeah. And he kind of came in, and he ruffled some feathers probably a little bit early on. But, but he had a desire to win. And so, obviously, when he comes here, he wants to bring people that he trusts. And he goes to the Phillies organization, bringing you from Philadelphia. And then from the Phillies, bringing Lee Elia, who we're going to talk about Lee a little bit more a different time. Yeah. But John Vukovic is a coach. Is Billy first, Connors came over. Yeah. Billy <laughs> Connors. And then he starts to kind of mold this team a little bit and starts to make a lot of trades. And, Bob, when I'm going through from, like, nine, the end of 1981 to 1984, and you see the amount of turnover. The Dallas kind of pulled off. It's unbelievable. He trades Mike Krukow and Cash to get Keith Moreland and Dickie Moles in December of 1981. And then in a trade that could arguably be considered the greatest trade in Cubs history, 
He swaps shortstops in January of 1982 with the Phillies. He trades Evanda Jesus for Larry Boa and, oh, yeah, a throw-in player, a third baseman named Ryan Sandberg. Yeah, Sandberg had come up with the Phillies at the end of the previous season and shown a little bit of talent there in Philadelphia. And Dallas remembered that. And I remember being in the room when he was having the negotiations with the Phillies general manager, Paul Owens, who was nicknamed the Pope. And the deal originally was going to be De Jesus for Boa and a throw-in. And Dallas kept on saying, I remember him on the phone. Nope, I want Sandberg. Nope, I want Sandberg or there's no deal. And he, he wore him down. And finally, Paul Owens threw in Ryan Sandberg. And that's how we got Rhino. And he became our third baseman in the 82 season. Uh, played exclusively there because Bump Wills was our second baseman. But Rhino, at the end of the 82 season, here's how he got over to second base. Ilya, Lee Ilya called for a, uh, a workout on an off day in September. The, well, the ball club was going nowhere. We were under 500, and the, the guys weren't too happy coming into Wrigley Field because, as you know, in Phil I mean, in uh, September, it can get pretty chilly. So he's going to have a workout infield grounders, go over some fundamentals and everything else. Well, Bump wasn't happy to be there. He had gone across the street to where McDonald's was <laughs> and bought a couple cheeseburgers and uh, put them in the back of his pockets of his uniform, walked across the street and resumed coming in to take the workout. Well, that didn't sit well with Lee. And as we found out later on in the 83 tie tirade, <laughs> he, he, he blew his gasket and he told Dallas later on, he says, he's never playing second base for me again. And that's when Sandberg uh, got into a few games at the end of September and was over at second base. And the following season, Rhino was moved over to second base. So you can say that Ryan got over to second base the next season thanks to the result of two Big Mac or, or cheeseburgers. I think there might be an advertising tie in there, Bob. But, uh, <laughs> you know, now that Sandberg is able to play a little bit of second, Dallas goes and, and he trades a couple minor leaguers. He gets Ron Say. And he brings over Steve Trout from the south side. And, and so on the 4th of July in 83, the Cubs were really only one game out of first place. And that's pretty good. But rough second half. They, they, they Once again, they finish in fifth place, 19 games behind the Phillies. Elias let go. And then Dallas decides to go and hire Jim Fry. And as you kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, Dallas managed against Fry in the 1980 World Series. It was Royals versus the Phillies. Yeah. And, you know, I, I had a hand in, in a small hand in bringing Jim Fry over. And uh, it goes back to the years when I covered the Orioles. And Jim Fry was one of Earl Weaver's coaches. And Jim was a student of hitting. He was a great hitting coach. And uh, he was a first base coach with the Orioles. And I had a pretty good relationship with him. And uh, I know when Dallas said he was going to be a candidate to be a, a, our manager, he sent me and he says, take your wife to Baltimore. I know you guys are back there. Take Jim and his wife, Joan, out to a nice restaurant and have a dinner. So I took them to a great restaurant, seafood place. We big, huge lobsters. And, um, of course, my wife ate one old lobster that night that they're still talking about back there. <laughs> but I came back, and I reported back to Dallas, and I said, you know, I think he'd be a pretty good manager here. He, he knows the game. He knows hitting. He could help out some of the guys. He's a little feisty. He's got some of that Earl Weaver in him. And I think – Dallas was considering also Joe Torrey at that mm. time, who I actually, that was kept kind of private. Joe came down one night and I'm back in my office right across uh, from Dallas's uh, office. 
and there's a bathroom there leading over to where the poodle was, our, our lunchroom. And so I go in there to take a break, and in walks in this guy, and I look over, and it's Joe Torrey. And I said, <laughs> Joe, what are you doing here? And it was 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock at night, and he Dallas probably thought nobody else was there. He was sneaking him in. And he says, I'm here to see Dallas. I said, oh, okay, I'll let you go. Looking for that manager's job, huh? And that's he didn't get it, and Jim Fry did. Hmm. And that's how Jim Fry came to the uh, Chicago Cubs. All right, so Jim Fry's over to the Cubs. You know, there, there's a couple moves that happened in the offseason. There's a three-way trade to bring over Scott Sanderson. Richie Hebner was signed as a free agent. But spring training did not go really well for you guys in 1984. It did not look like it ended up. Oh, that was a disaster. I mean, we lost 13 games at one time out there. I think we entered 20 and seven. Uh, we won a few games toward the end and everybody was kind of, we, we broke from, from Mesa at Hohokam Park and coming back to Chicago. Or, actually, no, we did not come back to Chicago. We started on the West coast in San Francisco and we played uh, the Giants. Then we played uh, the Dodgers and then we went over and played San Diego. We came back, I think it was a total of five games. And, uh, I thought, uh oh, this is going to get off to a bad start. We <laughs> lost the first game, but we came back from that road trip. I think uh, we were one game under. And for the rest of the season, we never fell under 500 again for the entire season. It just took off from there. And of course, it really took off uh, after uh, that June game against St. Louis. Right. Like you were saying, seven and 20 to finish spring training. You let go of Fergie Jenkins at the end, and he's only 16 games shy of winning 300 games. Mm -hmm. But I think that kind of speaks a little bit to Dallas's desire to win is that, hey, I'm not here for, you know, token wins. We're, we're here to try to put together a team. How hard was that, though, to have to let go of Fergie at the end of spring training? Well, I was one of the guys that was down there in the field when we had to say goodbye to him. And Fergie's a classy guy. I've always loved the guy. And uh, he, you know, he, he, he took it. But it was it was tough because when you see that's probably the writing on the wall, you're not coming back anywhere else. Uh, I I've been part of sometimes, and my son, who's now the assistant general manager with the Tampa Bay Rays, tells me it's tough when you're telling somebody they're no longer employed or you're sending them back to the minors. Those are tough conversations because it affects their whole family, and uh, it it's a tough business. You don't see that the fan doesn't see that, but you're dealing with players lives and their families and when you have to make decisions like that you do but as dallas always said i've got to make the tough decisions and he was prepared to do that dallas on the outside to the public looked like he was a rough and tough guy he was a teddy bear he loved one thing i always loved about dallas he was a family guy he always asked how your family was doing the wife and the kids and he he was always you know giving you a pat in the back or he would kick you in the butt. And, and there were times Dallas came up to me and he says, you know, Bob, I'm never going to ask you to do something I wouldn't do myself. And the thing I admired about Dallas Green, he goes back, he pitched in the major leagues, didn't have a great record, you know, with the Phillies or the Senators or whatever back in the 60s, but he had a good fastball and he had a great arm until he got hurt uh, there. But he also was in the scouting department with the Phillies. He moved up into like a scouting director's position there. He became the manager. So he once said to me, he says, you know, you can't BS me. I've been at every turn in this game and I know what it takes. And he looked at me, he says, Bob, I'll never get on you. But my motto is whatever it takes. 
whatever it takes. If you want to go out and play golf in spring training and you get all your work done, bring your golf clubs out there, I don't care. But you better get your job done. And he he was a big John Wayne. He, right. When he came into the he came into a room with that shock of white hair and his big frame, you knew he meant business and he set the tone for the organization. Well, not a lot of people believed in 1984. Everybody from the Chicago Papers to Sports Illustrated, the New York Times, they have the Cubs finishing last in the NL East. And Dallas knew that another move needed to happen. And so he went dipping back into the Phillies. He trades Bill Campbell and Mike Diaz for Bobby Dernier, Gary Matthews, and Porfi Altamirano. That had to have been, uh, I mean, that was right before opening day. That, that's kind of a shocking move so close to the season starting. Well, the two keys there were Cobbies to Niram and Matthews because Matthews, the Sarge, he was going to be our captain, our, our, our kind of our go-to guy to rally everybody, and he did that. I mean, he and, he and uh, Keith Moreland became instrumental, and when we lost a couple tough games, Nobody got down on themselves. And Denier, I mean, that was the one-two combination, top of the order. And uh, with with Sandberg batting two and Denier lead off, that set the table for the middle of the order to produce. And that was a key, key move uh, to get us going off to a decent start. You know, not only that, but I, it just it improved the outfield defense from 83 completely because you had Leon Durham playing left. You know, you, you had – Moreland was still in right. It's at center. It just, it just, the defense wasn't there. And, and by getting, you know, by putting Leon Durham in first base, by putting Matthews in left, and by having Bobby D in center, it really improved the defense. Not even like, and you said the oh, offense, yeah. obviously. Well, one thing I got to tell you, you mentioned Leon Durham. And there's an interesting sidelight to this. Most fans don't know about that. You know, everybody remembers the 84 Cubs and out in San Diego and the ball going through his legs. Well, if you go back a few years, uh, we had a trade on the on the on the table with the Philadelphia Phillies, where we would have gotten Denaird, we would have gotten Matthews, and we would have been sending various players over to the Philadelphia Phillies. One of which would have been Leon Durham. Hmm. And when that trade was nixed because of a budget matter, I thought Dallas was going to resign because Tribune came back and uh, you can't do this deal. It was a put us over budget, and Dallas slammed his fist down. I remember we were in the winter meetings when this went on and he says, dang it. He says, this would get us up to the second place and compete in the NL East. He says, that's what we're here for. And not just to go ahead and just be there and, and play 500 ball. So when that deal didn't go down, it was ironic that two years later, okay, now we make the deal and we get to near and we get uh, Matthews and, but we still had Durham. Durham would have been a member of the Philadelphia Phillies in mm. October of 84. He would not have been out there in San Diego on October the 7th when that ball went through his legs.